our scripture this morning. Which today comes from the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that by your goodness, might, that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You may be seated. Good morning. There's a lot, a whole lot there in uh, in Philemon. I was telling uh, Bob this morning, I wanted to look into this book since it is one of the shorter ones and uh, hoping to, you know, that's, that's coverable in a single message. Um, it's, it's not. There's a whole lot here that's not going to be um, unpacked uh, today. But I just want to look at these, the themes of um, reconciliation, of Christian love, of Christ's sacrifice for us, the, how, what he, what Jason was talking about, what Christ has done at the table and um, Christ being in us changes our relationships. Um, 
So it's more it's a it's a flyover with a look at uh, a lot of the big themes here in this letter. Um, a little bit of uh, context of one of those themes. Um, how do you prepare someone to receive a new sibling? Um, this was going on in our house around three months ago and, and before, um, talking to Judah and to Piper about Silas being on the way, um, you know, trying to anticipate the things that were going to change a little bit in their rhythm. And uh, so, you know, <clears throat> we, we ask him, um, Judah, Piper, do you, what do you think about having another another uh, little brother in the house? And thankfully, they were both all for it because um, there was no going back at that point. Um, so they were supportive. Um, but as far as getting into details, um, you know, Judah, uh, Judah, we're going to move your car seat uh, back a little bit so that we can put another car seat in. Well, Silas is coming. Silas can just drive, and I'll just stay in my car seat. It's a good plan. Um, but it's, it's hard to, there's especially the, you know, when you're working with um, young, brilliant minds, but young minds that it's, they don't have as much context, it's hard to prepare for a new brother to come into the, into the house. It's hard to know what to plan for. Um, and then for all of us who have um, brothers or sisters, um, and I think a lot of folks that, um, that didn't grow up with brothers and sisters, this tends to happen with a best friend or a cousin. Um, there's a little thing called sibling rivalry that seems to, it seems to be ubiquitous. I haven't found the family where it doesn't exist, um, uh, even a family where they hide it so well that you can't see it. Um, and where we're going today is somewhere more like sibling or brotherly reconciliation, but sibling rivalry, sibling fallings out um, seem to be common in our growing up experience. Um, have you ever thought, did you ever think, um, and don't point at this person if they're in here, but did you ever have the thought, something along the lines of, how in the world did I get stuck with a guy like this for a brother? How in the world did I get stuck with a, a brother like this? Um, I grew up with two brothers and three sisters, and there was occasion that a thought like that went through our, our minds, uh, my mind, and I would say theirs as well. In our growing up years, my little brother and I, um, we were about uh, just, just under two years apart, and um, we rarely saw eye to eye on anything during the growing up years. Um, there was a particular fall festival celebration um, that we hosted at, at our house that my parents put together, um, fall fodder, pumpkins, costumes, uh, and my older brother had just finished reading The Three Musketeers, so he came up with the brilliant plan that the Stevens brothers should coordinate our costumes um, to portray that heroic trio. So he went all out, my oldest brother. Uh, he forged rapiers from old fishing poles and CB radio antennas. Um, he was buying peacock feathers at Joanne Fabrics. Um, to this day, there's probably still a navy blue towel uh, turned into a cape with a golden cross or fleur-de-lis sewn onto the front um, in my dad's house somewhere. Well, somewhere along the way, Caleb, my older brother, and Jesse, my younger brother, disagreed about how the costuming and the, the approach should be handled. Um, I don't know what the details were, but the disagreement between the brothers became so sharp that uh, Jesse pulled out altogether. He said, I'm done. Um, he took the elements of his costume that were complete with him, and, and he, he uh, abandoned us. And so, at that late October fall festival, the heroic Stevens brothers showed up as Athos, Porthos, and Zorro. 
So we had all kinds of squabbles, disagreements, um, and sometimes there was reconciliation, and sometimes there wasn't. Often there wasn't. When it did come, it was usually facilitated by a sister or a parent. Um, But in many of those brotherly conflicts, no resolution was ever reached. And we often, on all parts, I'm sure, had the thought, how in the world did I get stuck with this guy for a brother? Well, in Paul's letter to Philemon, the focus is not sibling rivalry, but brotherly reconciliation. Philemon's new brother has done a little bit more than pulling out of a showstopper costume plan. But Paul's letter is looking for reconciliation. Paul is looking here for reconciliation in Christian relationships that depends on the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. A little bit of background on our our key characters here. Um, Paul wrote the letter as he identifies there in in, uh, the first verses, um, along with Timothy, but you see in the letter that it's, this is mostly, this is Paul leading, this is Paul writing to a dear brother, Philemon. Um, I guess uh, Will asked me, if, do you, before he read it loud, uh, do you say Philemon or Philemon? I said, I don't know, I haven't really said it out loud that much this week, but I think I say Philemon, but we'll just go back and forth. Um, but it was probably around 62 AD, written about the same time that he writes um, Colossians, and that's where uh, Philemon is. It's written to Philemon is the primary recipient of the letter. Um, he's a wealthy man, a Roman citizen in Colossae, who uh, became a believer through Paul's missionary journey to Ephesus, which happened about 10 years prior, five to 10 years prior. Um, Philemon hosts a church in his home, and he may be, uh, have sort of a leadership role in that church. Like many Roman citizens at the time, Philemon owned at least a slave that we know about, Onesimus, um, but probably owned multiple slaves, um, and uh, one of them was named Onesimus. That name, Onesimus, was a common name given to slaves or servants. It means useful. Um, and, and so Onesimus, we don't know the details exactly, but something led, there was a falling out with Onesimus and Philemon. Something led Onesimus to, to flee, to run away, to leave Philemon's household. Um, and the letter indicates that Onesimus may have stolen from Philemon as well. At any rate, Onesimus takes off. He, ends, he heads to Rome um, to, to be in the bustle of the big city, maybe because it's a better place to hide out. It's harder to be discovered there. There's new opportunities. No one would know him there. Um, and then while he's hundreds of miles away in Rome, who should Onesimus run into but the Apostle Paul? And after God ordains their meeting, Onesimus becomes a believer through, Paul's, uh, through, through Paul. Paul says later in the letter, he says, he became my child, I became his father. So Paul leads Onesimus to Christ, and, and then um, Paul, Paul then brings Onesimus into his ministry. He's serving Paul. Paul is probably, um, he says here, he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's probably in some form of uh, house arrest at this time in Rome, um, being guarded. His movements are not uh, free. He's, he's restricted in where he can go, maybe in who he can talk to. So Onesimus, uh, we don't know the details of what he's doing for Paul, but uh, probably serving a lot of really practical needs for the ministry that Paul continues, even as him, in his imprisonment. So this is their relationship. Onesimus is following, uh, is learning from Paul. Paul is bringing Onesimus into this ministry. But Paul is compelled by this truth of the gospel 
that Onesimus must return to Philemon and seek reconciliation among the two. As Paul highlights these two who are now brothers in the faith. So in writing the letter, the Holy Spirit gives the early church, as well as Providence Bible Church, a practical unfolding of the power of the gospel reality to transform individuals and to transform relationships. And I've been thinking through this week that that phrase, the gospel reality in which we live. Um, almost, uh, Almost a set of I don't want to say rules, but uh, house rules or guidelines that this is, the, this is the reality in which we exist. It's a reality shaped by the gospel of Christ. Um, everything we, we are called to is shaped by this, this gospel. What we see and learn about people and relationships in Philemon is rooted in the power of the gospel as the, a pervading, the pervading reality in which the Christian lives. And so there's two two ways that we see that um, in this letter. The first place is the reality transforms, the, go- the reality of the gospel transforms individual lives. We see that in three lives in particular here um, in the book of Philemon. The first is Paul. We know the story from, from the book of Acts that Paul was uh, named Saul. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would say. He was a rule keeper. Um, He was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous for God as he thought he knew God, but he completely missed the Messiah until Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and made his glory light shine into Paul's heart to give him the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And there's a, a transformation Paul goes, Saul uh, takes the name Paul and becomes uh, the, the, the missionary leader and the leading apostle of Christ's church. His zeal is now transformed into holy zeal for the furtherance of God's true kingdom. Now, the second character here is Onesimus. Onesimus, through the course of the, of the book, we see that he was originally an unfaithful servant. He was probably a thief. And through the gospel, he is transformed, it says, from useless to useful. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But he's not merely useful now as an obedient servant, but Paul is saying he's useful as both to Philemon and to Paul as a gospel partner. He's been transformed. He's been brought out of death into life. And Onesimus then, for his part, he doesn't get a chance to say anything in this letter, but for his part, he shows extraordinary humility and trust to come back to Philemon carrying this letter from Paul. And Philemon, we don't know much beyond knowing that he was a wealthy Roman citizen with a church that met in his house. We don't know anything from, from this book about him, uh, his life before his conversion. But Paul describes the kind of encouragement and refreshing that believers are receiving through Philemon in his home. We see in this letter, too, that they're... The, that uh, there is great expectation on Paul's part that Philemon is going to exemplify some deep gospel reality in the way that he responds when Onesimus returns. And that's the, the flow of the book is following um, what uh, the thought process and the heart process that Philemon is going to have to undergo. And so this gospel reality that transforms individual lives, that. It's Paul's belief 
in that power that is the basis that he urges and persuades people to live counterculturally, to glorify Jesus rather than following the flow of the world. It's a faith, it's a trust, it's a confidence that these are transformed people. He's not searching for change to come through natural means, but he's entrusting men's hearts to God. Paul calls men to deny themselves just as Christ does and to live noticeably gospel-focused lives because he knows that the Spirit of God is at work in these individuals. These are not natural men and women that he's dealing with. And so the hard-hitting truth and the, the, the urging and the pleading is with that gospel transformation in mind. Which leads us into how the letter of Philemon shows the gospel transformation not just of individuals, but of our relationships as believers. The gospel transforms our relationships. And relational transformation comes when relationships are grounded in truth and when they are nurtured by love. First of all, gospel relationships we see here are grounded in truth. This plays out in a couple of ways in Philemon. Through the letter, we see that the truth of the gospel, one, calls believers to thorough honesty, and two, the truth of the gospel provides the only right framework in which believers live. So first of all, it's the gospel that is compelling Paul to live thoroughly honestly, especially when it's difficult. Paul says there in verse 12, he says, I am sending him, Onesimus, back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent. Paul is utterly committed to honesty. He knows that there are difficult conversations coming for Onesimus and and Philemon. And Paul loves Onesimus. He would have gladly kept him in Rome. The, the, The word, the phrasing there is almost him saying, I wish I could just keep him with me. I want him here. But he's, he recognizes that in order for this gospel reconciliation to happen, there has to be an honest conversation between Onesimus and Philemon. Paul is committed to keeping honest truth as the foundation for his relationships and those of his fellow workers. And if we pause in this, before this letter was written, before Paul sat down to pen this letter, it would have been so easy, especially with the the position that Paul held in the early church and the, the reverence that, that his, um, his leadership held, it would have been so easy for Paul to say, Philemon will understand. He would probably would want it this way. He would, he would want Onesimus to stay. He's being productive here for the gospel. Um, there's no need to waste a trip. It's a long trip back to Colossae. I'll just keep Onesimus here. And by the time we ever get back to Philemon um, or he comes here, it will have smoothed itself out. No big deal. Let's, uh, this is what Philemon would want anyway. Let's just continue on. It would have been so easy to say that. But Paul doesn't. He, said, he, true, he puts his trust truly and puts the situation in God's hands. When he has the opportunity to pretend that Onesimus is running away doesn't have to be dealt with, he instead plunges into the difficult honesty Trusting in Christ's gospel and its transforming power to bring this reconciliation. It's a lifestyle of honesty that has been cultivated in Paul. And that lifestyle does require some serious commitment to the truth. Especially because the truth is always under attack. We see this in the world. We see this on, on banners and um, on 
social media profiles and pages and and it's it's prolific in the world the world wants to deny absolute truth the lost world is very uncomfortable with absolutes because with absolutes come uh, absolute standards people want to thrive on this plausible deniability let's just nurture this let's just pretend that it's going to be okay and you help me pretend and i'll help you pretend and we we all accept each other in that the children of the serpent follow the serpent's pattern The serpent said, did God really say? And the children arrive eventually at the position of saying, there is no God. But the tendency to suppress the truth does not just exist in the world. It's also in our own hearts. This is powerful and and sneaky in our flesh and in our hearts. We are continuously tempted toward white lies, half-truths, or just not saying anything. It's easier it's more comfortable. We try to protect our image of ourselves or we try to artificially smooth over a situation instead of dealing with the issue at hand. Paul's gospel example in his writing to Philemon shows us that this deep trust in the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work when his people honor and live in the truth. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. A sanctified Christian life will be marked by thorough honesty in every aspect of our lives. Well, the gospel truth not only calls us to honest, thoroughly honest living, but the gospel truth provides the only right framework for us to to live. We see this in the content, the body of Paul's appeal to Philemon for how he ought to receive Onesimus. See, Philemon has a framework because we all have a framework. We all have a a way that we think about things and think about the world. And in our natural manhood, we will form that through a combination of what we've been exposed to, what we like in the world, what our own personality is driven by. Um, So Philemon has a framework of what what his relationship is with Onesimus. Onesimus, it's two parts. Onesimus is his slave, and Onesimus owes him a debt. Onesimus has wronged him. He's my, he's my servant, and he's done me wrong. That's the relationship in uh, Philemon's natural man. And so Paul is about to show Philemon just how the gospel truth reorients that relationship. He says in verse 15, For this perhaps is why he was parted for you, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And in verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul wants Philemon to see the gospel truth about any worldly claim that he feels that he might have on Onesimus. See, Philemon may be thinking, master-slave. I'm his master, he's my slave. Paul says that relationship has been transformed into brother-brother. You got a new brother. When this guy ran away and now he's coming back, you've got a new sibling to welcome into the house. Paul wants Philemon to see that this, this is the fundamental relationship that, they, that these two now hold. It's no longer defined by master and slave, but it's brother and brother. And it's interesting that this letter was probably being delivered by Onesimus and Tychicus along with the letter to the Colossians, 
which Paul had recently written as well. So Philemon probably was hearing uh, the, the book of Philemon and the book of Colossians around the same time. And Paul says in Colossians 3.11, he says, Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In the letter to Philemon, Paul doesn't exactly explain how this gospel redefining happens from slave master to brother, brother, but he's giving strong hints at it here in Colossians. He says, Christ is all and in all. What he's, what he's, the truth that he's drawing out, the truth that he's proclaiming to, uh, to Philemon is this relationship with Christ. This is the defining relationship of your life, of his life, of every believer's life. Every human identifier, every birthright or title or heritage or status that's given by the world is overshadowed by this one defining relationship. Are you in the risen Christ? Because Christ is all. Not only that, but Christ is in all. Christ binds all of his people together in himself, regardless of any worldly status. Not only is the relationship redefined from master master and slave to brother and brother, but it's transformed from the temporal into the eternal. He says in verse 15, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. This is... I love this verse. The phrase for a while means a season, having a distinct beginning and end, a point in time. The phrase have him does not mean own him, but it means take him to yourself. Not, not to, to take him in, uh, back into his slavery, but that you fully receive him. Receive him, then, Paul says, as if you were receiving me. Take him into yourself. Take him into your heart. This is your brother. And the, and the word forever means forever. It means without beginning or end. For a while means having distinct beginning and end. There's a, there was a slave-master rela- slave relationship there. And at best, it would have endured for one of their lifetimes. And it may have been useful for for Philemon's little household goals. But he says, what you're receiving is not a slave for a short time. You're receiving a brother forever. No beginning, no end. This is an eternal relationship that's been established by an eternal God. That's who you're receiving back now. Paul wants Philemon to see the wonder of the exchange that's happened here. If Philemon thinks that he lost a servant, Paul wants him to see, no, 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 no. You have gained a dear brother, not just for this life, but into eternity. And this is such an important point for us to remember about our gospel relationships. They last forever. This is forever. That should stir us and stir our hearts to some kind of wonder about how we live and work and play and serve and worship with these brothers and sisters. It doesn't stop here. We're going to live together forever. We're going to be worshiping with all these beautiful weirdos 10,000 years from now. And that's good news. And we want to rejoice in that. Our joy will be so much fuller when we recognize the eternality of our relationships. We're brothers and sisters forever under the headship of our God. The relationship has changed from master master and slave to brother and brother It's changed from temporal to eternal. And Paul continues by showing how the gospel redefines this concept of debt and owing that Philemon may be thinking about. 
Paul says in verse 18, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. This is fascinating. Because rather than going into an explanation here, an extensive explanation, or to put the burden on Philemon to go ahead and forgive those debts and just just write it off as a loss, Paul instead embodies the posture of Christ in asking Philemon to lay that burden of debt on Paul. He says, whatever Onesimus might owe you, charge that to me. I will repay it. And he seals it up by saying, I'm writing this with my own hand. You know you can trust me. Charge it to my account. This is the, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Paul recognizes the truth that in order for the reconciliation to come between these two, the debts must be paid. But the debtor does not have to be the one to pay them. Onesimus probably had no means of paying Paul back, paying Philemon back. If he'd tried to work it off, he would have been enslaved that much longer, never able to enjoy the brotherly relationship with Philemon that Paul is praying for because it would have been overshadowed by this master and slave de- uh, um, creditor and debtor relationship. He never would have been able to enjoy the reconciliation. So the debt is absorbed by another. This is how Paul says it in Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He set it aside, but he set it aside to a discreet place where it was absorbed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. The beauty of the gospel centers around the reality that the great debt of sin is paid off, but not by the debtor. We have a substitute in Christ who stepped in to absorb the debt of sin against the Father, thereby reconciling us to a free and loving relationship with the Father. Here's how Paul helps connect it for Philemon. Onesimus probably owes Philemon thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars worth of stolen goods and missed work. But Paul gently puts this in perspective by reminding Philemon of the debt that Philemon owes for his eternal life. Philemon owed an eternal sin debt to a holy God, and he never paid a cent of it. Jesus paid that debt. Philemon owes his eternal life to Christ, and in a sense he owes Paul, as Paul is the one that God used to awaken faith in Philemon unto eternal life. So the measly 10 or 20 grand Philemon that Onesimus owes you, it pales in comparison to the eternal debt that, that you had worked up against Christ, against God. The truth conveyed here is the comparison, again, of the temporal and the eternal. Again, our joy will be fuller and deeper when we live in the light of the eternality of our relationships. The gospel truth shapes our relationships by calling us to enduring honesty. And it redefines our relationships under the headship of Christ, reminding us of the eternal. Paul lives and writes this powerful truth to help Philemon to respond to Onesimus' offense. But he doesn't simply convey the truth coldly either and then demand a response. He reaches out, he chooses to, to go this route, to reach out and make an appeal in love. 
showing how gospel relationships are nurtured. So our gospel relationships are grounded in the truth and they are nurtured by love. This is the second great theme of this letter to Philemon, Christian love. Love is all over the letter. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. Even the truest truth, Paul says, is not meant to be coldly applied. Knowing the deepest truth, knowing the deepest truth might compel someone to sit down and write a proclamation or even to write a dissertation. But it's love in the heart of Paul that motivates him to sit down and to craft that truth into a letter to a dear friend. The whole heart of Paul's letter is filled with love. It's strongly felt in Paul's relationship with Philemon as well as that with Onesimus. Paul opens by saying, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And then in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. There is an established love relationship between Paul and Philemon. Paul is encouraged by Philemon's love for the people of God. Here's how he characterizes Philemon's ministry. He says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That word refreshed means uh, to provide rest when it is much needed. To provide rest that really revives. The word choice highlights the fact that the, the love that is shown by Philemon has been a rich source of encouragement for many believers who are often wearied by the world and by the endless work of the gospel. In, um, in Tolkien's writings, there, there are several different descriptions of Rivendell, which is the, the home place of uh, Elrond and the elves of the valley. And Elrond's house is called the last homely house. And the house of Elrond is described as a place where a road-wearied traveler could come down into the valley and was sure to find nourishment for his body, respite for his mind, and wise counsel for his soul, no matter what his need was. He was refreshed there in the valley of Rivendell and in the last homely house. Philemon's house seemed to be a kind of homely house for the early church in Colossae. His love for Christ and, and for the church spilled over into beyond his family, into the church family and the faith community. He, he had a solid reputation for this love. He was known to be a refresher of hearts. And Paul even says in verse 20, he asks Philemon, refresh my heart, same word, refresh my heart by welcoming Onesimus as a brother. Do this as a refreshment for my heart. So when Paul says things like, I know you will do even more than I ask, we shouldn't go off base and think that this is a harsh or a manipulative letter in any way. Paul's not trying to gotcha Philemon into taking it easy on Onesimus. He's writing in genuine and sincere love for this brother. This is a heartfelt and loving appeal that's made from one beloved churchman to another. And he cites Philemon's pattern of love as one of the reasons for his confidence that he will be loving toward Onesimus. He will be a brother toward Onesimus. 
It's Paul's love for Philemon that drives him to make an appeal to Philemon's love rather than to command or even just to direct him. He says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He says in verse 14, I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, by a compulsion, but of your own accord. So it's not just when Paul sits down to write this letter, it is the, the compelling truth of the gospel that's, that's holding him to the paper, but it's also this compelling love for Philemon, that he knows this, the loving thing to do here is to pursue reconciliation between these two. To send Onesimus back so that reconciliation can, be, can happen. Paul is trusting fully in the Holy Spirit's work on Philemon's heart. When, Phile- when Philemon responds in love and faith, God will get the glory, not Paul. Paul isn't writing Philemon into a corner where he can't wiggle out of it. He's not, he's not trying to manipulate or gotcha him. He's... He's laying it out there, and he's laying it out there in love. And he's saying, this is the truth, and I love you, brother. And this is, in love, this is what I want. This is my appeal to you. So his appeal is motivated by his love for Philemon and for his love for Onesimus. Paul genuinely loves this guy. And, and I love that we don't know exactly how long Onesimus has been, um, has been a believer, but Paul has welcomed him in the most Pauline welcome imaginable, that Onesimus is already busy with the work of the gospel ministry. Now, that is under the headship and the guidance of Paul. We don't know, again, we don't know what all he was, what all he was doing, but Paul isn't saying, uh, you're, you're a runaway slave, you're a thief, um, why don't you just take it easy, um, just kind of hang out with that crowd over there for a while until you get used to this whole church thing, and then we'll talk about some, some ministry opportunities. Paul doesn't see it that way. There's not a separation like that in his mind. He brings him in, and he brings him in to do the work that, that he is, has been sovereignly restricted from doing. He's stuck in a house or stuck in prison, and, and Onesimus, the slave, ironically, is free to go about and, uh, and carry out some of the gospel ministry that Paul can't right now, isn't right now. And Onesimus seems to be doing a very good job in his new role. He's in, he, Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Philemon, it would be a really nice gift of you to send this guy back to me to help accomplish some of the gospel ministry here. Paul has done exactly what he's asking Philemon to do. He says, I'm sending my very heart. This guy I've taken into my very heart. He's he's not just a servant. I have welcomed him as a brother. And yeah, he's busy serving the gospel ministry alongside and under me. But the relationship, the defining relationship between Paul and Onesimus is brother-brother. He says, I would have been glad. I love this guy. I would have been glad to keep him here. But I knew, for love's sake, for the sake of reconciliation, he has to go back and straighten this out with Philemon. Paul is unquestioningly convinced of the gospel truth. But he recognizes and he exemplifies that that truth is applied in love. 
That's the heartbeat of the gospel reality. It's the nurturing force of the gospel reality. This deep love is the safeguard which keeps Paul from being manipulative with his understanding of truth. Because how tempting is it when we come to understand some truth to apply it to others with all the gentleness of a jackhammer? We're called to speak and to act in love. It it feels like fire in our bones and we just want to smash it over people's heads so that they see it too. But we're guarded by love. We're guarded by the love of Christ and the love of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians, Paul says it this way, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The building up of the body is done in love. The speaking of the truth is done in love. The most powerful truths land and are, and are applied because they're coming, they're, they're carried on, the, the, on love. They're carried through by love. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, Above all these, Paul says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There, there may be understandings reached here and there, but harmony comes when the truth is understood and applied in love. The compelling gospel truth must be lived out and shared and nurtured through Christ-like gospel love. Mark Vergop once said, we have to love, speaking about revitalizing churches and bringing, bringing people along who have been stuck in um, unhelpful traditions for a long time, He says, one of the key things is that you've got to love your people more than you hate where they're at. And it's true. The desire to see change in ourselves and in others should be be guardrailed and and applied in love. Love for those souls. Again, we're going to spend eternity with these folks. We ought to be learning to love them. His love is... The love that, that Paul exemplifies here is rooted in the understanding that it is always, and it has always been, God who moves men's hearts. Uh, Hudson Taylor, in um, preparing to, to leave for China, um, he spent years in England ready to go, but the opportunity wasn't there. And uh, he began in his prayer life, he, he began to see, uh, if I'm going to go where the gospel has not been shared, I am going to have to trust fully in the power of God to move men's hearts. That's Paul's trust here. Paul's going to explain the truth with every bit of Paulness that he's got. But he's going to trust the change to the Savior, to the Spirit, to the truth applied in love by our God. Paul recognizes that Philemon's kindness toward Onesimus must come from Philemon's own heart. As stirred by the Holy Spirit. That's when God will be glorified. That's when the brothers will be truly reconciled. There's no play acting here. It doesn't do any good for for Philemon to to bring him back and make a show of welcoming him as a brother and to despise him in his heart. This has to be genuine. And so Paul says, here it is, brother. I love you. I'm making this appeal to you. And this letter is covered in prayer. Well, Paul then closes the letter saying that he is confident that Philemon will do even more than he's asked and tells him he hopes to come visit soon. 
It's funny, we don't know exactly how Philemon responded to Onesimus' return. Did he forgive? Did he grant Onesimus his freedom? We don't know. But Paul knew Philemon better than we do. And he is genuinely confident that, that, that reconciliation is coming. This just reinforces the gospel confidence that Paul holds. That in the truth, in the truth of Christ and in the love that it's been shown in Philemon. And Paul's plan to travel to Philemon's house shows his eagerness to see his dear brother and to witness the reconciliation for which he's praying. And so he leaves this example for us. When we were tempted, when we are tempted, to throw up our hands and ask, how in the world did I get stuck with this brother? What am I supposed to do with this? We must examine our hearts. We need to take a long, hard look at the gospel reality in which we live. And look for ways that we're not living in it. Our goal for relationships should be reconciliation. We're loving these people and we're going to be loving these people into eternity. So remember the truth. We are called to thorough honesty. Honesty that permeates every aspect of our lives with all of our Christian relationships. Remember that these relationships are eternal with brothers and with sisters. We will always be, we will not always be husbands and wives. We will not always be parents and kids. We will always be brothers and sisters, united in Christ, who is all and in all. We need to take a look at our pride when we think about what we're owed. How many times, how many times is there a falling out because someone has injured someone else? Whether they knew it or not, and there's a perception there, and it may be real, there may be something owed there. There's an apology owed. He never did say, I'm sorry. He never said anything about it at all. But when we think about what is owed to us, don't stop there. Remember what you owed to Christ and that you didn't pay one red cent of your debt, but that God crushed his son under our sins and the wrath against our sins so that our debt could be declared paid in full, so that when we relate to God, there's not even a, a shadow of the sins which separated us. That's been removed. We relate to God freely as he is our father and we his children. And when we have truth to share, slow down, pray, take the time to craft that truth through the labor of genuine love. We're not driven just by truth. We're driven by speaking the truth in love. So the truth of the gospel, no matter how, how obvious it may seem to us, the truth of the gospel will... We ought to trust that the Holy Spirit is in the work of applying that to the hearts of our brothers and sisters. And so speak the truth in love. Remember, our goal is not just to, for everybody to see the same truth we're seeing. Our goal is reconciliation. Our goal is to see that supernatural work of Christ where we arrive at the truth, but through the journey of, of love. And in this, in all of these endeavors, we trust in the promise 
that Paul writes in Colossians 1, 19 through 22. He says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the ministry of reconciliation that you have orchestrated and accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the perfection of his life and his sacrifice. Thank you for your word and your truth. Father, we pray that we, our, our hearts and our minds would be compelled by the gospel truth, that we would, we would hate lies and dishonesty, that we would want all things to be in the light, that we wouldn't trust in our own perception of ourselves or other people's perception, but that we would trust in the reality that we are forgiven, that we are saints according to the work of Christ, not, not because we did anything right. Father, we pray that you would nurture our understanding of the gospel through your love, that your love would flow freely in us and through us, among us, that they would know that we are Christians by our love, that the world would see this is different. This doesn't fit into any of our frameworks. It's something from another world entirely. Father, teach us to be loving, to be patient, to be gracious to pursue reconciliation, to pursue truth and honesty that it might nurture our love for you and for one another. We pray that you would, in your Holy Spirit, apply this to our hearts as you do. We trust in your promises. We trust in your power and in your grace. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you would, please...